Today on Podcast by the Bay, current U.S. Senator candidate of California, Pat Harris. Right now, we are faced with and have been faced with the last 20 or 30 years a Congress that does not work and doesn't represent working people because corporate don- corporate donors have essentially paid off our politicians. Who talks real solutions on housing, government, politics, and gun violence? You want to make a real difference in gun safety in this country? You prevent the NRA from buying off congressmen. You get corporate money out where the NRA can't contribute to congressmen. You're going to see the entire discussion. You're going to see legislation change overnight. Also, feedback from the Jerry Hill Kevin Mullen Open House discussing all sorts of local issues including the SBA 27. We're very much against it because we, we think it'll lose control of local government. I mean, the whole purpose of having local government is for people to have a voice. All coming up on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. And now, another podcast by the Bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. This is Andre. And this is Patrick. And thank you for listening to this show of Podcast by the Bay. We're excited to have you with us today. And today, we have a great packed show here. We have a two-part show. We have an exclusive interview with U.S. Senator candidate from California, Pat Harris. And also in the second part of our show, we're going to do a live on the beat show from the Jerry Hill, Kevin Mullen Open House from back on March 22nd, where they actually discussed the SB 827 bill and uh, among the other issues. So with that, we're going to talk about Pat Harris to begin with. And so we had an exclusive interview with U.S. Senator candidate um, from California, Pat Harris. And so, Patrick, can you give us a little background about Pat Harris and how do we meet Pat Harris and, and, and how, you know, what, what, what's going on with Pat? Absolutely. You know, we had an uh, opportunity at the uh, last year at the holiday party for the Democratic Party in San Mateo County of meeting Pat Harris. Uh, that was the first time I met Pat Harris. Um, and he did tell me he was from Southern California uh, and that he was vying for a seat uh, to upset, upset uh, U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's been in the position for uh, quite a few quite a few years. And uh, a very nice gentleman, a nice white-haired, uh, dignified person. He did have a little bit of a southern accent. I, I'm not originally sure where it, he was from, but it sounded like he was from uh, Arkansas, if I'm not mistaken. 
And um, Andre I had a great opportunity to do an exclusive interview with Pat Harris. He reached out to us with Podcast by the Bay because he wanted to, to use a platform that everybody seems to be reaching out to us. And Andre, can you give us a little background um, of Pat Harris, um, who you did an exclusive interview with? Sure. So I, I was actually honored to actually meet Pat Harris and actually to interview him and to really understand why he's running for U.S. Senator uh, and really some of his background. And it's actually fascinating. Uh, he actually has uh, been an attorney for, for a long time and, and, you know, working on a lot of the social issues and, and things like that. He actually was involved in some of the Whitewater uh, investigation back in um, uh, in the 90s, in the mid 90s. And he actually represented um, Susan Madogo, who was actually part of the Whitewater investigation, so he represented her, and I and I and I uh, in, in two separate instances, and he'll actually go into some of that background in the interview and how he was kind of uh, uh, one of his uh, one of her co co counsels on uh, two of her cases back in the mid '90s. So it was actually fascinating to see how he actually tied all the way back to the Clinton years and, and, and President Clinton. And, and that whole uh, saga. And so it was very fascinating and to see how he fit in. And uh, we asked a couple questions about that. So you'll be uh, kind of uh, enlightened to kind of hear what he has to say about that. But it was great to meet him. He is from Arkansas. And uh, he moved out here, I believe, to Southern California, I think it was. And, um, yeah, and it's just kind of great to hear somebody who is running for that caliber of office what their perspectives are, how they're looking at things, and really what do they want to do to really facilitate change for the people and really for government. So I think we get down to some of those questions in the um, in the interview, and it's actually it was a, it was a great great opportunity for us to meet and hear from uh, Pat Harris. And so yeah, so um, I think with that we can go ahead and probably get to the interview, and then when we come back from the interview, we're going to get into the Jerry Hill Kevin Mullen open house. That happened last week on uh, March 22nd, and, and uh, Patrick will probably give us a great uh, insight and kind of just overview on what happened when we return, because there was a lot of stuff happening at that uh, open house. So we'll get back to that. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get to the Pat Harris interview, and we hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back right after this. Stay tuned. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. We are excited today. We are excited we have a U.S. senator candidate from California named Pat Harris joining us, and we are excited to have him on the show and to really uh, talk some of what he's about. And so, Pat, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. We appreciate you being here. Andre, I appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Great. So um, this race is a very kind of a competitive race. There's, a, there's some different uh, – there's a kind of a tight field, and so – can you provide uh, the listeners really a little background about yourself and really why have you decided to run for U.S. Senator? Sure. Um, my background is pretty much I grew up in a small town in Arkansas, in rural Arkansas. came out to California as an attorney, and I've been practicing as a criminal defense and civil rights attorney for about the last 25 years. I've um, done a lot of pretty much uh, taken on a lot of like Pfizer and Wells Fargo and Bank of America, and I took on the Catholic Church over the abuse of children. So I've done a lot of uh, high-profile cases. Um, I decided to get in because in my legal work, what I do on a regular basis is I fight, and I fight against what I consider to be injustices, and I fight against, as I said, large corporations and Wall Street companies, and and I felt like that 
what we're seeing in this country is we are seeing essentially it's no longer a no longer a fight between Republicans and Democrats. It's a fight between the elite wealthy versus the working class. And I feel like the working class doesn't have a voice. They don't have anybody fighting for them. The people who are currently senators and congressmen take corporate donations from these large corporations and vote the way they want. I feel like the working class need a voice. And that's why I decided to run, and I feel like that, uh, that's who I want to fight for. Sounds good. I mean, I think that's a, that's that's a great. I mean, uh, I think anybody who has a vision and goes after it. I mean, why not, right? I mean, we we all have an opportunity. And I think we got to take advantage of it. So I think, you know, that that's a definitely a novel uh, uh, novel cause for 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 what you're doing. So, you know, this Senate seat is a crowded field. You have a uh, incumbent uh, Senator Feinstein and also Kevin DeLeon, and so I think many voters. I think they're going to ask themselves. When they look at the, the, the tight field, they're going to ask, well, what does Pat Harris bring to the table and why should they vote for you? I think the first thing I bring and the main thing that differentiates me between both Senator Feinstein and uh, Kevin DeLeon is I will not take corporate donations. Uh, I think right now we are faced with and have been faced with the last 20 or 30 years a Congress that does not work and doesn't represent working people because corporate don't corporate donors have essentially paid off our politicians. Uh, you see senators and congressmen accepting donations from defense contractors, from big pharma, from big oil, and then voting against their own constituents' interests. Both uh, Senator Feinstein and, and uh, Kevin DeLeon accept corporate don- uh, donations. They've accepted money from both of them. They've accepted money from uh, defense contractors and, and big ag and big oil and and I just feel like that in order to represent people, you can't turn around and say, well, I'm going to represent the real people of California, the working men and women of California, but I'm going to take this large contribution from um, Chevron or, or whatever company, and, you know, that's who I'm, I'm going to take money from. But, of course, um, that ends up going to be who I'm going to represent. So... That's the biggest difference, number one. Number two, I also have differences with both of my opponents over the defense budget, and I feel like that both are strong supporters uh, of a defense budget that is way out of whack. I believe very strongly we need to cut the defense department spending. It's wasteful to begin with, but it's also taking away from things that matter to people, things we could be spending on like medical research, like scientific technology, uh, like environmental causes that can help uh, reverse climate change. That's where I believe the money should be going. I think our priorities are out of whack, and I'm the one candidate that believes very strongly in uh, cutting back on the Defense Department. So those are two of the major areas I disagree with both of them on. You know, uh, you know, Pat, you brought up an incredible point, and one of the things I think that happens when we look at our current political state and we look at the politicians and there's a transformation and you actually highlighted it. You actually just brought it up. What happens when there's that hunger and that passion and all of a sudden they get to that place in Washington or they get wherever they're trying to to reach and it changes. And why is that? Why, why does that happen? I'm just, you know, maybe some of the listeners would be curious. I'm kind of curious. I mean, it does seem like that occurs. It very much occurs. It's, it's a, it's based on the fact that, um, when a politician goes to Washington, I think they have good intentions. I think they want to be there to represent people and to help. 
Um, but then the mentality sets in, it's almost an us-against-them mentality of, I've got to get reelected. Everything depends on me getting reelected, and the only way I'm going to help people and help my constituents is for me to get reelected. They, they almost become this sort of savior complex, and I'm the only person who can represent my constituents, and I've got to be reelected at all costs. And if that means compromising my values some, if it means maybe taking some corporate donations I wouldn't normally take, if it means maybe voting against something my constituents want, as long as it gets me reelected, that's the most important thing for my constituents, and they get that mentality and at that point, they're just lost. And it's something, I worked on the Hill, the Capitol Hill, for about two and a half years. I saw it repeatedly. You see good men and women who go there, and they get, they just get lured in by the, the, the concept of being there, the power, and the concept that re-election is what the entire thing is about. And that's just not true. It shouldn't be true. In fact, I've told people, look, from the day I get elected, I won't spend one minute on the phone raising money. Not one minute. For the six years I'm there, I will not spend one minute raising money because that is what takes them away from their job and away from what they should be doing for the people. Yeah, I mean, that that, that definitely makes sense. So I appreciate you kind of giving us a kind of a perspective on that. So if, you know, so I think some of the voters and really some of the people listening will probably would like to know if you are elected and if you do become the next California senator for the United States how would you be able to facilitate change as a relative newcomer? And, you know, how, how would you do that? That's a great question. And I, I think that the answer lies in what a senator can, has the capabilities of doing, especially a senator from California, who is automatically, um, because of where the sixth largest economy becomes a leader in the country. I think that there are two possibilities for a senator. One possibility is to quietly go to work and to spend six years and then try and get reelected and spend the next six years and then again the next six years and quietly spend their time building up the, their way to seniority and getting on committees and going from subcommittees to major committees and, and getting along, going along to get along. Uh, that is certainly one way that most most politicians do it. There's a second way, though, and the second way is a way that I disagree with Senator Feinstein. Uh, Senator Feinstein said we don't need rabble-rousers on Capitol Hill. I disagree. I think that's exactly what this country calls for right now. We're at a unique point in history. We need rabble-rousers, and that's the second type of, of congressman or senator, someone who is out there every single day pushing the issues that need to be pushed on television, on radio, on podcasts like this, writing books, going around the country, doing whatever's necessary. You see, for example, Elizabeth Warren has done amazing things for income inequality in Wall Street, fighting Wall Street. You see what Bernie Sanders has done for Medicare for All. They put it out there. They force it to be on the, the front burners of this country's um, campaigns, and that's the kind of senator I want to be. I want to be somebody who's out there every day talking about Medicare for All, talking about getting campaign money or corporate money out of campaigns. I want to be a rabble-rouser. I think that's what this state deserves, and I think that's what this country needs. Sounds good. I mean, um, so let's talk national. And looking really at our national state, really, the, you know, the country seems to have kind of a significant political divide and lack of communication. 
And I think most of the voters are really frustrated with the current process, right? They're just, they're, they're done, right? They're just, they're, they're frustrated with our current state. So how do yeah. we bridge the gap where we can start working together and really update our, you know, update the processes for meaningful change? In order to negotiate, you have to have two sides willing to negotiate. That's the first law of, of any kind of negotiation, whether it's politics, business, or relationships. You have to have two people willing to negotiate, two sides. Right now, one side, and for the last basically nine years, the Republican Party has refused to negotiate. What the Democrats have done in response, which is where I, I differ with them, is they have been willing to sort of start the negotiations at the center and move toward the right and what the Republicans want. The way to negotiate with somebody who won't negotiate is to say, okay, you want to play that game? Two can play that game. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to shut down the government over this issue. We're going to fight for this. We're going to, to raise holy hell about whatever this particular issue may be. Then you get the other side to come to the table. That's how you get them to come and have a reasonable negotiation. That's the only way it's going to work right now. Because of, I, I, My one criticism of President Obama was I always felt like he always started off negotiating from the point where he wanted to end up. And you never do that. You start negotiating from a, from a position different from where you want to end up, and then you compromise to the middle. Right now, we start, Democrats, unfortunately, start in the middle and compromise to the right. And that's been a major, major problem. And I, I think the only way we're going to cure it is by standing up and fighting and saying, no, we're not going to do that. And basically telling them, look, you want to shut down the government? Shut down the government. Fine. We'll do it. But we're going to stand up to you. And that's the kind of senator I'll be. So one of the concerns, I think, with many of the voters and factors on why they had really voted for our current president was the imbalance of kind of their living wages to really mm -hmm. the significant rise in living costs, right? And so yes. I think this is happening everywhere. It's definitely happening here in California, right? You see these, the living costs are just, you know, have really skyrocketed and then wages have, haven't kept up. So what can be done to really help balance this indifference? You, you hit on what I think is the, the biggest issue in this country today, and that is the balance in terms of equality of income. Um, we have, for the last 20 to 30 years, as the Democratic Party, we've gotten away from that and understanding that that is the issue for our people, and the working men and women that we've represented for all those years. We Today, I get frustrated when I turn on the television and I see the Democrats talking about the Russia investigation or talking about Stormy Daniels or issues like that that Democrats need to be focusing on. That's not what people are, are thinking about. When, when you drive down the freeway and you see somebody on your left and somebody on your right, they're not worried about Stormy Daniels, believe me. They're worried about <laughs> whether or not they can have to take a third job or whether or not they're going to be able to pay off a student loan mm -hmm. or whether they're even going to be able to make the rent that month. That's what people are worried about. We have to focus on that. We have to do things like raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. We have to do things like increase earned income tax credits, especially for single mothers so that they can provide additional income to them to help raise their children. We need to provide retraining for workers who are unemployed 
And while they're being retrained in industries, we need to provide them a stipend so that they can survive while they're being retrained. These are some of the things we need to do to, to address income inequality. And then, of course, we need, I believe, very strongly in Medicare for All, because Medicare for All is going to help alleviate for so many people the problems of health coverage and health issues and the inability to be able to, to know that if something serious happens, you're not going to go bankrupt. So those are some of the issues that we, or some of the things we have to do to address income inequality. But first and foremost, we have to concentrate on it. We have to understand that has to be our number one issue, and we need to quit all the other silliness, discussing all this other stuff. And as I've told people, look, hating Trump is not an agenda. I'm not a Trump fan, obviously, but hating him is not an agenda. We have to put forth to people what we're going to do and the things we're going to do to change their lives on a daily basis, like a $15 minimum wage, like increasing earned income tax credits. Those are concrete ideas that actually actually affect people's lives. That's what we need to be focusing on. No, I, I love it, Pat. I think one of the things here at Podcast by the Bay, we actually like to talk solutions and we like to talk practical solutions. And there's a couple practical solutions. So definitely appreciate your feedback and for really kind of highlighting that. Um, so a couple other questions. Uh, we have a... Are you aware of the State Bill 827 from Scott Weiner, who's talking about the transit-rich housing? That's kind of a hot topic. I am. Okay, so, yeah. you know, it's it's a very hot topic right now. Uh, it's being debated up and down pretty much all the cities and, and, and really uh, metropolitan areas. And where do you really stand on this bill? And are there alternative solutions that you can also see as an opportunity from your perspective to really deal with the lack of affordable housing? It's interesting when I got in the race. Um, and I was first studying, really getting into the housing issue and studying it and seeing where we were, I think I would have supported 827. Um, my initial reaction, and I think Scott Weiner's um, intentions are good because you do want to see if you can put together housing near uh, transit centers, obviously, and it helps the environment, it helps people financially. Those are admirable causes, and those are things that I think when we look at, we think, okay, this is this is a righteous cause. But what we what we're finding is, in fact, and what I'm afraid, eight twenty seven, and why I don't support it, is we're finding that in essence, we're we are taking away affordable housing. What what in some cases is very some of the very few affordable housing in areas, and we're building these structures. We're going to intend to build these structures that are going to eliminate this affordable housing. We're increasing gentrification of these neighborhoods where we're taking poor people out, forcing them to go further and further away from their homes and their areas and their neighborhoods. I think the purpose of it was good. I really do. I think the intent was good, but I just don't think in the long run, I do think it's something that is going to cause more damage, especially to lower-income people, and so I don't support it. Appreciate your feedback on that. I think that's a, definitely there's, it's been a hotly debated issue. And, I mean, I, I think there's definitely concern whether all the, the building that's happening is really going to address the issue. So I think that, um, you know, definitely appreciate yeah. your honest feedback on that. Um, so one of the things is bail reform. And, it's, you know, it's a hot topic. And since you were somebody that's kind of worked in the judicial system, how do you feel about the current system? And what are some practical solutions you might recommend for sustainable bail reform? 
bail reform in the system is a disaster right now in the state system. Um, I've worked with it for the last 24 years. I've seen it. I see, I can give you an example of a hundred examples, but one just uh, sticks out of my mind of a guy who went to 7-Eleven and stole some, I think he was accused of stealing some bologna or some Oscar Mayer or something or other, and essentially he was arrested, thrown into jail. The, the judge set his bail at what I'm sure the judge sounded very reasonable, uh, $10,000, which means he would need somewhere around $1,000 to bail out. Well, he's stealing bologna because he didn't have any food, so he doesn't have $1,000. So, in essence, what happened was, is this is a guy who was a cook in a restaurant, had a very low income, had a family he was supporting, and they had to live in a small apartment. He was unable to bail out. By the time his court appearances came, he had lost his job, he had lost the apartment, and he lost his family. All over a what should have been a no-bail situation um, and should have never, ever been kept in jail. It was a nonviolent crime. It was a small misdemeanor. But the system is geared that way, and it's geared toward, unfortunately, it's geared toward this so that bail bondsmen and others make a profit off of it. We've seen it over and over, and what we need to do is do go to the federal system. The federal system in this country is much better in terms of bail. What it addresses is, is the person a risk to the community, number one, and number two, are they a flight risk? It doesn't determine what your, you know, doesn't put a value on what your crime is or doesn't uh, go to how much money you have. It simply says, for example, the person I just gave the, the baloney example of, that person would have been, would never have had a bail. They would have put a signature and they'd have been out because it's a nonviolent crime with almost no chance that the person was going to flee. So the federal system actually works in this company, country and works pretty well. But the state systems are a disaster, and we need to go from the, the what the state systems do, where they essentially your bail is set on what you can afford or how much money you have. It needs to go to a system like the federal system, and it is unfortunately indicative of the entire judicial system, which is so much based more on profits. Like for now, we have for-profit prisons again in this country uh, after Obama had, sh- had shut them down and um, or had kept the federal government from shutting them down. Now we've gone back to those. So we now have for-profit prisons, which require, in order to make a profit, you got to have people in the beds. So you need people arrested. Um, the system is broken. The judicial system is broken, and it's based largely on money, and we have got to get the money angle out of the criminal justice system, period. Appreciate your feedback, uh, Pat, especially since uh, with your background as a a criminal defense attorney, you you definitely bring a good perspective to that. Um, So right now we're kind of our society is at a really pivotal point, especially around gun violence. And I think it's just been escalating for years and years and years. And we are at a point that I think people just are not going to take it anymore. And so what we're recognizing, I think there's, there's just, it's just this constant battle, and it's a, you can see it's a difficult battle. So is there an opportunity to really 
move towards common sense gun reform and sustainable change for these gun laws? There are two possibilities here. One is yes. To answer directly your, your question, is there a possibility of going toward more reasonable gun laws? Absolutely. Um, there are a number of incremental changes that we can make. We, they're being talked about banning assault weapons, uh, raising the age of when you can buy a weapon, um, getting rid of bump stocks. Those are all nice incremental changes. And yes, I think they are doable in the current atmosphere in this country. I, I really believe that. But the second thing is a more drastic change, and it goes back to what I've been talking about several times in our conversation, getting corporate money out of politics. Do you want to make a real difference in gun safety in this country? You prevent the NRA from buying off congressmen. You get corporate money out where the NRA can't contribute to congressmen. You're going to see the entire discussion. You're going to see legislation change overnight. Right now, the NRA essentially supports a huge, huge number of congressmen in their re-election, and in that many times is their major donor in their re-election effort. Obviously, these congressmen and senators are going to support whatever the NRA wants. We eliminate corporate donations. We eliminate the NRA. You cut them off at the knees, and you're going to see gun safety regulation this, regulations in this country that are really strong and really common sense. I hope so. <laughs> I really hope mm. so, and I and I and I appreciate your your idea behind that because that def definitely makes sense, and I think that a lot of the listeners will kind of agree that we have to start somewhere, and these are two great approaches. So appreciate that. Um, so mm -hmm. I think this is kind of a couple more questions. So, you know, we understand just kind of looking at your background that you were co counsel co counsel on uh, two separate uh, cases uh, with uh, Susan McDougall. And in the mid to late mm -hmm. 90s, and she was part of the Whitewater investigation back in 1996 involving President Clinton. So going through that experience and being involved in such a high-profile, politically charged case, what did you learn about government and the officials that oversee this nation? That was That's a great question, Andre. Um, what I learned is this. I learned that essentially politics often doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with what the people want it's it's people's careers they're more interested in their careers and what they can make out of it they are in what's justice and what's right and in that particular case i was representing susan mcdougall and she refused to testify for kenneth Starr. kenneth Starr was the special prosecutor who was going after bill clinton at the time um susan it, it wasn't about to her it wasn't about bill clinton it really had nothing to do with him it had to do with kenneth Starr. wanted her to lie uh, wanted her to make up a story about the Clintons, and she just refused. And essentially, he had her put in jail and, you know, trumped up a bunch of stuff. We fought with Kenneth Starr for pretty much six years on that case and ended up beating him. We ended up winning. But what I learned from it was, was here's a man who, he knew better than that. He knew right and wrong there. He knew he was trying to get her to lie. But his career meant more, and that's not uncommon in Washington. His career meant more than what was right and what was justice. And I think that lesson is unfortunately what turned me in many ways against politics for a long time. It really did. It, it embittered me and made me feel like that politics is nothing more than people's personal ambitions. Uh, and that's uh, fortunately has changed, and it's changed largely because of 
the progressive movement and people like Bernie Sanders, who I, you know, who I think Elizabeth Warren, who I think we can have faith in again. Great. Well, appreciate appreciate you giving us some insight on that. And um, yeah. Um, so, where can the public find out more about you, your vision, this campaign, and any upcoming events? Well, my website is patharrisforsenate.com, and the four is F-O-R, so it's spelled out. So it's patharrisforsenate.com or Pat Harris for Senate Facebook. Uh, we put a lot of our calendar stuff on there. We're all around the state. Um, we're actually flying up to, to Berkeley tomorrow night. I'm doing a, um, a quick thing in Berkeley at a, a meeting there uh, for our revolution, uh, the East Bay, our revolution. And we're going all around the state. We have uh, an eco-powered bus. We've taken an old 1980 school bus. We've converted it. It runs on, the whole inside runs on solar power, solar power from the solar panels on the roof. Uh, the bus itself runs on ethanol, and we take that bus up and down the state. We've been pretty much everywhere. We've, one of the things we decide in this campaign is we are going to go to places that no other politician would go. We've been to places like Butte County probably six times, Fresno. We go up and down the valleys, the deserts. I've uh, been up to places like Quincy and some of the most beautiful places in the state. Um, and it's because we're determined to talk to people normally don't have, they feel like they don't have a voice. So anybody who wants to follow us, they can go to the website. We would love it if they would donate. Um, we tease that we'll take $2 million donations, but if you don't have $2 million, we'll take $5, um, $10, $20, whatever you can afford. We do not take corporate donations, so it's important that we do get individual donations, no matter how small. Um, so we appreciate that. And then you follow the bus tour and what we are just by looking at our calendar and hopefully come by and uh, talk to us and ask questions. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Are, do you have any last words for our listeners or for the voters out there for this upcoming primary? I would just say this. Please, please take a look at what the system is right now and where we are and realize it has got to change. We have to have real change. And the people who are running right now, the people in power, the establishment, if they continue to be elected, then it's our fault for keep sending the same people back to do the same things over and over and over and over. We need real change. We need candidates who are going to go, and as I said earlier, rabble rousers who are going to put uh, who are going to put this country back on track. I tell people, the Democrats often say, "We are going to take this country back." And I say, no, we're not. We're going to take this country forward. We have the ability to take a new, bright agenda and move this country forward. But we're only going to do it if we're willing to fight for it. And that's what I'm about. And that's what this campaign's about. And that's what the people who are working with us are about. So I hope people will uh, take a look and join us. Sounds good. Well, Podcast by the Bay, we'd like to thank you, Pat. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and to hear all about your background and to hear how you feel about on all the issues. So we definitely appreciate your time and we look forward to hearing more about you in the news, in the media, on the campaign trail and uh, best of luck on the U S Senate race. Thank you, Andre. I appreciate you. Sounds good. All right. With that, we're going to sign off and we'll see you on the next episode of podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Okay. Welcome back to podcast by the Bay. 
And uh, we hope you enjoy that exclusive interview with Pat Harris and really understand, you know, from a senator candidate what their perspective is and, uh, you know, how they're going to stack up against somebody like uh, Diane Feinstein and Kevin DeLeon and, and really hear somebody's perspective about that. So we definitely appreciate the time and the insight from Pat Harris. So with that, we're going to keep on moving. And uh, so, Patrick, last week there was an open house at Jerry Hill and Kevin Mullins' open house here in uh, San Mateo. And from what I understand, you were there, and there was a lot of stuff happening. So maybe you can give us a kind of a brief overview of what happening uh, at the actual um, event and, and how it went down. Okay, thanks, Andre. Uh, it was an honor to, to be there. This happened at the Jerry Hill and Kevin Mullins uh, location on El Camino. Nice day. Uh, we, uh, there was not any rain going on, so that was all good. I would say there was probably between 150 to 200 people. The idea was really um, kind of like a town meeting, but except you were really meeting in the lobby um, of the, of the uh, uh, building there. And this is how they've done it in the past. Uh, Assemblyman Kevin Mullins was there to begin with, uh, and also uh, State Senator Jerry Hill. Uh, they both did their introduction. They allowed the people to intermingle between 4.30 and probably, uh, I would say, 5.30, a quarter to 6. Um, I had a wonderful opportunity to say hello to Kevin, say hello to Jerry, but I was there to find out what the people were there what what were their concerns? Um, I had an opportunity to interview some uh, a couple of gentlemen from Brisbane that their concern was the airport noise that the location that they lived in Brisbane uh, was not being followed up. They had followed up with uh, Senator Hill's office. They had followed up with Kevin's Kevin Mullen's office, and they were trying to get some 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 issues resolved. Um, I also um, able to speak with a few people that were um, lived right off of uh, uh, of the uh, Farm Hill or Edgewood uh, uh, f- uh, freeway off 280 that were very very upset about the high speeds that people were coming off the freeway, um, especially coming into their neighborhoods off um, uh, Woodside and and uh, Woodside Road and and 280. So there was a lot of people that were concerned or very burnt up about what's happening with transportation, what plans are, are being had. They wanted to see more uh, red st- uh, lights or stop signs. They were concerned about the high speed of people coming through the neighborhoods. Um, and I'm assuming that's also true off Farm Hill. Farm Hill and Woodside are heavily traveled. A lot of times, just like what we see off 92 where people are going into foster city or they're coming off 92 and they're they're trying to circle around they're finding that same thing happening in their direction Uh, we had a lot of people willing to talk about housing Uh, housing was a concern Um, a lot of the people that were there for the housing i would say andre for the majority of the people that were there Mostly we're senior citizens. Um, um, I, and obviously between the hours of 4.30 and 6.30 doesn't necessarily lend itself to maybe somebody that's working at Apple or somebody that's working an office job. Even though that might have been an appropriate time, it didn't get the crowd. The crowd was still the typical senior citizens or retired people. Um, had an opportunity to talk to uh, a few teachers, retired teachers. Their their concerns were some of the other concerns that we have in the Bay Area. How do we fill these teachers' positions 
when the cost of housing is so high and they can't afford to rent. So they had some concerns. Um, uh, Jerry Hill addressed what's happening back at the state Senate uh, and what proposals are out there. Uh, there was a rapid, rapid discussion about uh, bill assembly bill by Senator Weiner, 827. Um, and basically, Senator Weiner's bill is trying to say, hey, cities, we're the state of California. We're going to tell you, you got to build housing and you got to start stepping up to the plate. Um, and, you know, this kind of goes in conjunction, Andre, with some of my interviews with um, over the 10 mayors plus that I've got interviewed so far. Each city doesn't necessarily have a policy on affordable housing or workforce housing. Some cities do. The city of Foster City has a 15% requirement. City of Redwood City has no requirement. Uh, Burlingame goes by project by project. Uh, Pacifica has uh, project by project. Uh, for the most part, the only dedicated thing that we see in most cities is that they do have some semblance of senior housing. Um, but the discussion is somehow we need to get a better, um, I think, Andre, and you brought this up, some kind of regional planning where that we're really looking at the environment first. And then we're looking to build accordingly to the environment, um, because with the infrastructures all seeming at a seam right now where they could start to fail, whether it's your gas pipe or or whether it's your your uh, transformers for the elect electricity. We're all seeing that there's some some semblance of, of a breakdown here and we need we need to deal with that to improve what's going on. Um, please listen. I did have some younger voters there. We had some students that wanted to think about getting into politics someday. Um, I interviewed um, a, a nice young lady that said she wanted to be involved in politics. She was in high school. So it was an engaged time. It was a little bit on the noisy side, but um, I think they accomplished what they wanted to do. Uh, and that's the people to participate in what, what was a town hall meeting, but it was really just a gathering of people talking issues. It was a little loud. So if you hear some of the clips that I have, you've got to understand there was a lot of people there, but they were all engaged in the process. Well, this is all great, Patrick, and definitely appreciate you actually getting out there on the beat for a podcast by the Bay, for the people, for the listeners to really get down and talk to some of the people that were there and actually listening, talking about the issues, talking about SBA 27, right? Talking about the traffics and talking about the various issues that affect the community. I mean, I think that you really highlight the, the issue when it comes down to actually the housing and really what kind of issue are we are we talking about because i think there, there there's really two sides to the housing issue right there's a, there's a, the affordable uh housing right for renter renters right that's 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 a great portion of the the people and then there's really affordable housing for purchasing right so the, we're looking even at two different sides and i think that the sba 27 kind of looks at it from a, a state perspective so i think that there's a lot of information there and a lot of uh, there's going to be a lot more discussion about this bill and how it really affects the cities and, and, and the counties and, and things like that compared to from a state level. And I think this is a it's, it's a good discussion, and I think it is interesting to hear the different sides. I mean, I think there is a demand for housing, and I think we can all agree. We can all agree that, yes, we need housing. We, we need it. And, but I think we do have to ask the question, at what cost? At what cost? is all this building, all the housing that, that we're building. So I think that's what it gets down to. So with that, I think we're going to go ahead and get to some of the feedback and some of the interviews live on the beat with Patrick here. And 
If you have any questions, if you have any feedback, please reach out to us, podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcastbythebay. And we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. So with that, this is Andre. And this is Patrick. And we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Hi, Wade. This is Patrick. And Wade White, why are you here today at this open house? I'm a local resident of San Mateo, and this uh, SB 827 concerns me. Uh, That's the Wiener Bill, if I'm not The Wiener Bill, right, correct. And just the overall uh, traffic issues, water issues, uh, quality of life in San Mateo seems to be going down. Well, I'm excited that you're here. The transportation is the number one, and number two seems to be housing. Right. And I think they're both intertwined here. Yes. Okay. I I see some good points in the bill, but I I think it's just too late. Uh, A lot of our government issues, by the time they get something worked out and put into the bill, it's too late. We're already built up. There's nowhere to go. Well, my, it's my passion that there's environmental impact reports that we're using are too outdated. Right. And I think we need to update them for the safety because most of the protection for you, for you and I in individual cities is police and fire. And I don't think they're taking that into account. But Oh, they're not. Uh, I just finished CERT training. And uh, we have about 95 police officers on duty on a regular basis in San Mateo for 100 and. 10, 15,000 people, and if we're if we have a disaster or something, most of them can't live here. The affordability and uh, the firemen are probably less than that. We're on our own. Well, I want you to get your voice heard, and I appreciate that you're here. This is a good opportunity to let the legislator know what you're feeling. Great. I think there's a great sentiment with all the cities not to go any further with the Wiener Bill, but let's see what happens. Sure. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks to local resident Wade White. Now we're going to speak with another resident from Palo Alto named Terry Holzner. And uh, who am I having the pleasure to speak uh, with? Terry Holzner. Terry, are you from Palo Alto? Yes, I Okay, am. and tell us why you're here at this well, open I'm, house. I'm with a group called Palo Altoans for Sensible Zoning, and we're very concerned about the two Senate bills that are currently being proposed. Are you talking about Wiener? Yes, the Wiener yes. What's your opinion on that? Well, we're very much against it because we, we think it'll lose control of local government. I mean, the whole purpose of having local government is for people to have a voice in what happens in their city. And this actually takes the power away and gives it to the state to control. Yeah, that is kind of scary. And I think uh, most of the cities on the peninsula, I'm aware, are all against it. Right. Um, and I'm not sure on these elected officials. I think Senator here has not made a commitment. That's true. And I, I have not heard any commitments from either our state assemblyman, who is Mark Berman, and I have not heard anything from uh, Senator Jerry Hill either. Okay, now Kevin, I'm not sure. I think Kevin was kind of leaning towards it, but I'm not sure yet. No, Mark Berman is well, I mean, the assembly. Who's Kevin? Well, he's the, he's the local assemblyman. Yeah, yeah, yeah Mark this. Berman is your assemblyman. Right, exactly. Yeah. Now yeah. I understand. No, no problem. Mark is against it too, isn't he? Well, he wouldn't answer the questions when we, at his open house. He wouldn't. He would. He wouldn't commit one way or the other. Wow. Well, you know, I, I had an opportunity to interview the maybe of the future governor, um, Gavin Newsom, and he indicated that we need some three hundred thousand units in the state. Okay. 
what we're finding is there's no planning. They just want to throw them out there. Exactly. No planning, and they haven't thought it through. And there is new evidence that this high-density housing and stuff is not healthy for the environment, even though that's one of the reasons, supposedly. Well, I'm in favor of housing, but I want planned housing because I feel that we're doing too much to damage our current environment, like yes. you mentioned. And I think our environmental reports that we're using are outdated. Outdated. So, anything else a burning issue here that you guys are here for? Well, just, just to make sure our, our state officials understand that there are people who are watching what they're doing. And, and it isn't just everything that's controlled in Sacramento. And I think too often the assemblymen and the state senators in San Francisco uh, dictate what's going to happen. And um, I think it's time that people in other local facilities stand up and get, have their voices. Excellent, excellent. Finally, Patrick speaks with Pat Tainer and Peter Grace from Brisbane, who discuss the airplane noise coming to SFO. Hi, hi Pat Tainer, and you are? Peter Grace. Okay, and you guys are here to uh, voice on what? What's, what's your concerns? We, we both live in Brisbane. Okay. We are both subject to aircraft noise. Okay. There's a permanent noise monitor in Brisbane. It's one of the 27 that are scattered around the San Francisco area. And what we've discovered is that all the, all the, all the noise monitors, all these permanent noise monitors, have got their thresholds at 65 decibels. The state mandate is 55. Well, you know, they passed a law, and I'm not sure that it's still in effect. I live in one of those airport noise foster city, that if you got the license number, you can fine them $10,000 or something well, like that. Get your binoculars out. Yes, get your binoculars <laughs> out. What's actually the case with us is that um, 11 of the 27 monitors have been, the waiver has been extended to make them 65 decibels. The remaining 17, there is no such waiver. However, the airport has put them to 65 decibels. And you say, why am I so concerned? about the difference between 65 and 55. Research has shown that when we, when a monitor was put in Brisbane, a temporary one, it was put in at 55, and then it was subsequently, another occasion, was put in at 65. When it was 55, it was showing 142 noise events per day, and when it was 65, it reduced it to 23. There was a six times undercounting of noise events when it's set at 65 compared to 55. Okay, what have you been able to do with this? Uh, have you brought it to the county? Have you brought it to the Well, airport? we're here to bring it to our state representatives. Okay, This okay. is a California law. Okay. Through Cal Caltrans. It's mandated by the state for the health benefit of the protection of the health of the people of the affected counties. And yet uh, it's been set at a different level that's un under-reporting the amount of the number of noise Desert. events that are occurring. Well, I feel very passionate about that same issue because, like I said, I live in Foster City yeah. and I've been there 26 years. You're on the years. Uh, landing track. I'm on the landing track yes. and uh, my girlfriend can't sleep at night. So, appreciate Is there any other issue that you gentlemen are here for? No. That's it. Only that to try and get this noise issue raised Okay. And turn the discussion into the number of noise events Okay. wait for the FAA discussion this average over 24 hours is CNL. All right. Which does not record the annoyance of your feeling being in Foster City. Well, we appreciate it on Podcast by the Bay. Look forward to getting this up on the air in probably another week or so, okay? Thank you.
Yeah, Foster City here is in December, in August to show you how bad it is. In Foster City, you had 328. Can you s- can you send me that information? You can send it. You've got my card. You can send it or email it to me. A podcast by the bay. Okay. I appreciate that. Thanks again. we'd like to thank Shulka for that beautiful piece entitled Timeless. You can check them out at www.shulka.net. That's Shulka.net. And not only does Shulka do music, but he's also an artist. And he's actually having a big show coming up on April 21st and 22nd at the Hunter's Point Open Studios both days from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. And he's in building 115 on the second floor. So you can go into his studio. You can check out all his artwork, his mixed media, his photography, and really uh, get to know more about Shulka and uh, hear what he's about. And we appreciate all kind of art here at Podcast by the Bay. That's what we do. We support the arts. We support the people in the community. So that's what we're doing. So check it out. Shulka.net. That's www.shulka.net All right, and we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. All material is property and copyrighted by Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Stay tuned.